Hello and welcome to episode 214 of What Most People Think and I am back, I'm back from the Edinburgh Fringe and last night I slept in a, an adult bed, a big bed with a mattress that was, well it was thicker than the fucking Kit Kat sized mattress I was sleeping on for two weeks up at the Fringe. I also um, had a shower with, uh, the, well felt more, had a bit more pressure than feeling like a couple of people shooting me with a with a water pistol. So it's good to be back. And thank you so much to everybody that came uh, to the run at the Edinburgh Fringe. It was, I sold out the run. I had two extra shows uh, in bigger rooms on the, on the the late on the Saturdays. Both of those sold out. And it's, I tell you what, I know a lot of people knock the Edinburgh Fringe and there is, it's still the best place to get a show really fucking up to scratch. You know, nothing, nothing sharpens a show like knowing you're going to have to do the same thing in the same place the following fucking day. So when I got up there, I, yeah, it, it just tightened up as it went along and I'm very excited for you all to see it out on tour. One of the weird things that happens when you're up at the Edinburgh Fringe is that, um, well, the, 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 the Scottish kids go back to school early, much earlier than the English kids and it's a really... It's a slightly disconcerting feeling, like where where you feel like you've overslept, but by a couple of weeks, you know, one of those things. about, hang on, what, what year is this? <laughs> you just like, what, what, why are the kids going back to school? All like, all of a sudden, summer ends. You know, like that horrible moment where do you know, like when the Christmas decks are up, and then you go you go out one day, and your mum's just had a mad clean, and they're all gone. So uh, it does sort of eject you into the uh, the back of the arse end of. Um, Summer, but I'm, you know, I'm back and very much looking forward um, to taking this show around the country. I also saw Anton Dubeck, Anton Dubeck, who just just had a show up there. I don't really, I don't know why, but it was great fun. It was like a bit of Strictly on at uh, on at lunchtime. He come out, he did a few jokes. You know, I think some of his jokes might have been told during live at the Coliseum season four, but it didn't matter. It was just good fun. He had some gorgeous dancers that came out. You know, they did some songs, they did some stick. I thought maybe this is <laughs> maybe this is the future uh, of the Edinburgh Fringe. You know, it's just uh, mainstream entertainment. Wouldn't that be funny if the alternative fringe suddenly went all the way round to the people that are really selling tickets up there? Is like Anton Dubeck and like an, an afternoon with Amanda Holden. <laughs> I mean, it would sell. It would sell, wouldn't it? Who else could you get there? A Q and A with Ben Shepherd. That, that would be, I mean, just as in pure, if you want an actual punchline to a joke, the true punchline to the Edinburgh Fringe is if it ended up being a really mainstream festival where very famous people just go out, do a song, do a dance, tell some old jokes and fuck off. Just to tell you what subject, so it's one main subject this week. We have got a solo show this week and it's one of those weeks where I felt it merited it because we've got all the ULEs. The ULEZ expansion, which is just feels like the biggest story uh, in town at the moment. There's a lot of anger towards um, Sadiq Khan. So we'll be try- trying to get to grips with that. Discover why people are so angry, whether or not the data used to sell the benefits of uh, ULEZ itself have been, though, if those books have been a little bit cooked. But before that, uh, we welcome some new patrons to, uh, by the way, the Patreon is, you go to patreon.com whatever, and you just type that in, and uh, just put in either Jeff Norcott or what most people think, and there are various levels, and at all of them, you will be helping keep the podcast uh, weekly, and you'll also get loads of content, there's a Patreon-only 
uh, episode which is coming out at the end of this week or Thursday, I think. Then that comes monthly. And if you're a VIP, you get a guaranteed question that will be read out in that. And speaking of VIPs, we've got a new VIP. Why can't I say this? Timothy Worrell. Timothy Worrell. That is, I mean, that just sounds like a name of, do you know those sitcoms where they used to have like a hapless male neighbour? You know, the kind of guy that would always be played by Tim Brooke Taylor featuring Tim, Timothy Worrell. And it would just come out of him holding his hands up and going, what have I done? Um, Timothy Worrell, thank you. Welcome to the VIP enclosure there. I'll just put your wristband on. So who else we got? We've got Kate Early. Kate Early sounds like one of those, you know, one of those weather girls you used to get back in the day when you... You just watch it and go, she doesn't give a fuck about the weather. She just wants to be famous. They used to have some of those. Hi, I'm Kate Early. And this was the only way I could be on television. <laughs> uh, no shade on Eureka. Um, Tom Horton. And if you're a real 90s person, you would have gone, ka, 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 ka. Uh, Tom Horton. I mean, these are some posh names, aren't they? We've got Timothy Worrell, Kate Early and Tom Horton. Were you all like in a costume drama together at some point? Are you are you all kind of like sort of secondary characters in Poldark? <laughs> What happened to Poldark, by the way? That was the start, wasn't it, of those pervy those pervy dramas that women now watch, middle-aged. I spoke a lot about it in stand-up, but there's these dramas now. This is where women get their porn. Basically, they have a reverse ratio to male porn, whereas male porn is like 5% plot, 95% shagging. Women have a lot of plot. And then just this one scene of incredibly vig- vigorous sex that no man will ever be able to perform, or, or should want to, really. I mean, I've, I've said enough on stage about my beliefs about work surfaces. The, the greatest sex that you'll, you'll ever have uh, is one that doesn't demand anti-inflammatory straight afterwards. Domain Talking Point, our super patron, David Domain, who um, who looks at last week's episode and just picks out a few things to clarify and expand upon. But before that, actually, I did have a little bit of kickback. Again, I'm getting in trouble, man. Uh, about my comments about hat wearers. Of course, I didn't include in the my comments about the hat wearing community proper considerations for the bald community. Uh, so to give you one example of the correspondence that I've had, uh, this is from Dan. He says, Jeff, I'm a baldy with ginger skin. <sighs> Jesus Christ. Does that actually affect like your health, your life insurance quotes? <laughs> I mean, I've got no stats to back this up, um, but I just don't feel like you would live as long as other people. Um, head burning is an issue that I have to take seriously. Having a head like an Amsterdam Belicia beacon is not fun. <laughs> it feels like the sun gave you a UV facelift as your scalp shrivels. Then the skin comes off in chunks. Wow. Uh, um, so he basically says, so I'm not about to slather my head in sun cream, as you know, as I say. As I say in the book, The British Bloke Decoded, which is out now in just over a couple of weeks, uh, we, we don't do it, we just, we're, not, we're not doing the sun, it's not manly, okay? We'd rather have those dodgy little spots that you have to go and see the doctor for. <laughs> uh, so it's hats all the way for Dan. Um, and he also says to me, if you want to give me grief for being a slaphead, then go nuts. But I'd point out that you're also further from the sun because you are a short ass. Well, I'm slightly below the UK average, so if you want to call that short ass, then you'd probably be in line with most of my audience that giggle every time that I say that I'm nearly the average... It's just so... For men, I mean, again, I don't want to keep plugging the book, but I do talk about tall privilege. And I'll just drop a little fact here. Is that um, tall men, right? So you think like they get they get job, they get, they're more likely to get jobs that they go for, more likely to get sexual interest for women. Here's the thing. There's one survey that suggests that tall men feel less physical pain than shorter men. 
you know, given that we're looking at loads of different ways that we can tax the population for spurious reasons, whether it be motoring or fucking fat tax. <laughs> if I just made that up, fat tax, that would be controversial, wouldn't it? Just tax people who are fat. That would be tense, wouldn't it? Going to the doctors going, oh, I haven't put on weight. I can't afford it. I've just been laid off. I've just been laid off, doctor. <laughs> can't you shave off a couple of pounds? He'd be like, can't you shave off a couple of pounds? Have a fucking salad. But Dan... Thankfully, does concede that people who wear hats indoors definitely need to have a word with themselves, and they are knobbers. Um, so David Domain's feedback from last week's episodes. He says, uh, those desktop toys that I mentioned involving the clicking and clacking metal balls, you know the ones, that, those executive toys that, that where the ball goes, well, you know what it is. They're called a Newton's Cradle. That's a good bit of trivia, isn't it? A Newton's Cradle in its reference to Isaac Newton's observation on the conservation of momentum and the conservation of energy, which the cradle demonstrates. That is exactly what I thought, actually. Um, another issue with sun cream, he elaborates on the sun cream thing, and the British bloke, is a widespread myth in Britain that sun cream is only for hot weather. In reality, it's UV that causes sunburn, and a UV level index of 7 will burn you just as quickly and badly at 18 degrees uh, at eighteen degrees Celsius as it would be at 30, 38. This, I mean, yeah, immediately, I, I, this sounds right, but I just, no one would think that. I mean, there was a day earlier this year where me and my missus, we sat out at this, um, we sat out at this, like, a beer garden, and we both got a suntan that suggested we'd done like, done like a fucking month in the Riviera. It was um, probably not good, really. Probably not good. I've still got, I've still, you know, like when you take off your T-shirt, it looks like you're still wearing them. It's sort of like a milky skin coloured T-shirt fashioned from the epidermis of a tired middle-aged man. Uh, well, that's good. That's good to know, isn't it? Is that, is that right? What? No, David Domain, he's never been wrong so far. Jesus. So it's the UV index. Yeah, I mean, I've seen the UV. I just haven't paid any attention to it. Um, he also says rubbing sun cream in may not be manly. However, skin cancer is now the sixth most common cancer for men in the UK. Well, what you've just hit me there, David, is with a bunch of stats uh, to do with health that I cannot argue against. And of course, uh, being a bloke, I will now file them somewhere away um, and ignore them. What most people think. Okay, before we talk about you, Les, let's do a quick thank you and a fuck you. Uh, quick, a couple of thank yous, actually. A couple of really positive ones here. Well, getting the train back to Edinburgh, I got on and I, I, I got a bacon roll and a coffee, right? And then it, it took long to come out and then I got on the train. I was thinking, that's quite dehydrating. And then they said, um, the cafe or the buffet bar will not be open. So I was like, fuck. I just, and, then, and then I found this geezer who's, who's the train manager and um, and I asked him if I could if I could go into first class and get a water, and he was like, oh, sure. He was like, nice Jordy, you know. It's like, all oh, right, you're yeah, sure. And I think he thought I was hungover, and that was actually a better reason, you know. He, he was going to be helpful in that case, but if I said, oh, it's because I had a coffee, you know, and bacon roll, they're very dehydrated. He might he might have stopped me. And then once I was in first class, I just felt like saying, pushing my luck, going, can I just sit here? <laughs> the upgrade is so is so ridiculous, but. Um, he helped me out and for that I am eternally grateful and then my son who went away to Portugal with my wife the pilot on EasyJet let my son have a go in his cockpit and he don't grow up please grow up um, and I didn't even think that that sort of thing happened anymore I just thought that was sort of like not protocol but there's a you know that's what a great thing as a boy you know he went out and he was I don't know what the, the gear he was fucking around with the gear and stuff like that not the gear gear but the the gear stick and um I shared it with some of my mates, and of course, the first thing that they did was share me back memes of that bit in airplane where the pervy <laughs> airline pilot goes, "Hey, Jimmy, do you ever watch uh, Roman Gladiator films?" 
God, that was a time, wasn't it? We could laugh at paedophilia, you know? We can, and people, audiences still do. There is, there is a weird thing with celebrity paedophiles. Is that I've, not, I've done this a couple of times at gigs. If I just say to people, just envisage them and try not to laugh. Jimmy Savile, right? Gary Glitter, Rolf Harris. Why are they all so fucking comical? Write in what most people think, UK at gmail.com. Uh, um, yeah, why? And that would be like the worst FM radio phone-in, wouldn't it? Okay, on High FM, right, that was Shania Twain. I was just talking with the guys in the studio. Why are paedophiles, certainly the celebrity ones, so funny? Keep them coming in. Anyway, Ed Sheeran, that's not a good phone-in, is it? Uh, the fuck you. The fuck you is to... So I was at Acosta, and um, this, this woman, she was just like fussing her kid. You know these kind of women that just think that... These mothers that just think that their child's smallest whim, its most tiny little inclination, basically trumps... Anything else humanity needs to get done. So this kid was like just just fussing and quite clearly reveling in the attention of choosing which sandwich it wanted and kept changing its mind um, deliberately. But she was so focused on this kid. There was this queue forming and I just thought fucking... And then the husband was there and he was he was just a bit... He was a bit of a sap, to be honest. And then so eventually the kid decided that he wanted the sandwich that he'd fucking picked up the first time around. And then um, and then he just... The guy just said to his wife, like, um, do you want a coffee? She went... Ugh. For God's sake, Roger, yeah, just get me a flat white. And she was just so mean to him for no reason. And I was like, you've literally stamped on his balls, not only in front of your son, but in front of all these people here. And then, so the woman then starts making the coffee. And then the woman goes, actually, can I get a chai latte? And then, so the guy, the husband, and then she goes, oh, don't bother, Roger, don't bother. Like, she's making all of these problems. I really, I really hated this woman. Because I, I thought she was being quite fucking mean and then and then the guy was trying to make it right and then his wife was acting like it was him causing the fuss and and this took this this took ages and we were all exchanging looks with each other in the queue you know the kind of you've seen these pricks look i mean you can you can get that you know you can get but then i felt sorry for the husband because he can because uh, he looked at me and was like oh, sorry and I was thinking, like, about this guy. I was thinking, your wife's a fucking bully, man. But just, I don't know. Because there were some people in the queue that were sort of laughing about what a nightmare she was being. But literally, if you flip that around the other way, if there's a guy just going, oh, for God's sake, Michelle, like, it just intimidating to the, them to a point where they get nervous. So I do, I do think, I, uh, I don't know if the process of writing the book has made me more sympathetic to the struggle uh, <laughs> of other men. But I just wanted to say to that guy, maybe I should have done something like, you know, like, when you, if people want to date, they leave their number. I should have just wrote my number on a card and say, if you ever want a fucking mental weekend in Prague, just give me a shout. Okay, let's talk about all things Ulez. So I am recording this on Tuesday, the 28th, the 29th. When 29th of August, a historic day, the Ulez, which already existed for central London, has been expanded uh, to Greater London. And when I say expanded, I mean, just have a look at the map. This is like expanded, just like you might think of uh, building an extension on your house. This is if your extension was like three times the size of your house, right? And before any any of the, the lefties or the Labour supporters say, but you know, Boris bought it in originally. Yes, I know. I'm fully aware that Boris bought in the Ulez for central London um, originally. But what's happened is there's been a massive kickback to this. Massive. This is this is one of the bigger sort of 
political hot potatoes that, that I can remember, certainly for the last 13 years that has faced Labour, you know, if you leave aside controversies about how they were run under Corbyn, it's, it's kind of, I think it's because it's playing, these are extra costs, right, that come into a perfect storm of, you know, extra costs that people are facing anyway through cost of living, people coming out of COVID, people trying to make their businesses work, you know, things still not really, for a lot of people being fully back. Um, to what they were. And, I, you know, I said it in the episode with, with Matt Ford, probably shouldn't bring that up, but I said Matt Ford, and I did say it, you can listen back, is that, you know, Labour are the establishment in London. Labour are effectively the government in London because not only do they run the mayoral office, they run a lot of the councils and stuff. So collectively their power is, this, you know, is if not as great as the national government, you know, it's certainly getting there. So Sadiq has walked on to an uppercut with this and there have been protests and, you know, he's kind of, he, he's even, he's had to tweak his little scrappage scheme, which only included people on certain benefits. And now he's, he, you know, he's increased it to um, to a, a greater group of people. And it was originally a two grand scrappage scheme. Because you can all, you all know what great cars you can get <laughs> for two grand. What kind of fucking car could you get for two grand? I'd imagine it would have to be one of those souped up Vauxhall Novas. From, do you remember from the early 90s, those horrific looking things with a fat exhaust? Um you know, with 120,000 miles on the clock. That was the same as the scrappage scheme that I think Gordon Brown offered in the late noughties. Two grand. So it's, it's the same. The same. I know that there's there's more available for commercial vehicles, but commercial vehicles also do cost more. And apparently, you know, there's this scheme that you can apply for. I, I don't think everybody's guaranteed to be accepted on it because uh, there are 850,000 ineligible vehicles in London, which I think is a lot more. So this this transpired because of a freedom of information request by the RAC. And, and you know, some of the cars that might not qualify uh, for ULEZ exemption, some of them could be less than 10 years old. And I sort of think 10 years, that is not, I'm just getting into my stride with a car in 10 years. We're just starting to know each other, you know. With me in a car, 10 years, it's like an arranged marriage where it's only just starting to work, you know. We were forced together, but we've sort of worked out each other's kinks and weirdnesses. And I was, was going to... I know you're thinking it. Is he going to do a gag saying when they need servicing? Yes, let's do that gag. But two grand, you know, just for normal domestic vehicles, is such a derisory sum, isn't it? It's sort of like, you know when you're... Your, your grandparents give you a tenner towards something way more expensive. So, like, they turn up for your birthday and they go, right, we know you wanted a Mega Drive. So, and they hand you a card. You're going, oh, my God. It's, and then it's 20 quid. They're going, that's towards the Mega Drive. You go, great. Yeah, when, I, when I'm playing the Mega Drive, I'll think of the, the 10% of Mega Drive that you gave me. <laughs> so, Sadiq has gone out to bat. You know, he's gone to face down his cr- critics. And one of the things that he's, he's said many times is that there are 4,000 Londoners dying of, of air pollution. You know, and I suppose post-COVID, a lot of people would immediately say of air pollution or with air pollution. Is that is that is that okay to make that joke? I don't know. Um, it would seem from certain articles, I mean, there's only been one death certificate um, that has said that it was a direct cause, but it's certainly a contested figure. But it's one of those it's one of those stats that really carries a lot of the argument. You know, where it, it, it could be based in tr- total truth. A truth is it, I've tried to find a fact check for this. So if anyone knows the answer, David Domain, stand by your bed, or what most people think, UK at gmail.com. You know, whether it's contributory, whether it's the principal cause. Now, I know a lot of people would say that one death, you know, that was accelerated by 
pollution is one too many. And I think, and I understand, you know, that's a, a, one of those sort of left-wing appealing sentence structures, isn't it? One death is too many. You go, oh, it's really fucking tricky, isn't it? It's like when they said COVID, one death is too many. No one's safe till everyone's safe. And like, so let's stop talking like fucking Avengers here. And let's just co- contemplate the fact that London is a city of 9 million people. And it's really complicated because, yes, if one person dies from air pollution, that for that person, nothing will ever answer why that was allowed to happen. But if, you know, 2 million people are pushed into poverty or can't do their jobs, there's also attendant consequences from that. Their business goes under, stress goes up early. So it's not, it's not just a zero-sum game with a nice, tidy little sentence where you can feel like fucking Captain America. One death is too many. Um, so the data is that, um, that they've used has been contested. So there's a debate over the numbers. Um, so on the one hand, maybe it made air 29% cleaner. That seems like a lot. Straight away, I just don't think that that is even possible. Uh, plays 3%. 3% seems more likely. And I'd like to base scientific outcomes on just my gut instinct, really. <laughs> What do you think it seems? What's your gut telling you, Jeff? I think if we got more science should be decided this way. Now, everyone, of course, wants cleaner air, but at what cost? You know, we talked about the collateral. Um, I, I just wonder, you know, and when you talk about this research, right, it does turn out that the uh, the mayoral office gave the producers of the research that they've used 800 grand in funding. Now, I don't know about you, but if I'm paying 800 grand in funding, I want a, I want a useful answer, right? Now, I'm not, I'm not a legend corruption here but it's just how the game works isn't it if i if i went to see a private doctor and my main inclination was to have valium i i, I suspect i'd be coming out there with some fucking valium you go to your gp they're like no no we're not giving you you go to a private doctor you go and see a private doctor and they're like drug dealers they're like what do you want bruv i've got anything mate i've got valium viagra all the all of these you know what i mean i've got it all mate what do you want do you want beta blockers uppers downers i'll do it mate because you're the client so I was interested to read an article um, in The Spectator. And before any lefties get annoyed, because obviously I'm a, a fascist, that's why I read The Spectator. Uh, and it, said, it called this kind of data corruption, noble causes corruption. The idea where if you feel that you've got the moral right of way, that you can kind of play fast and loose with the facts, right? We did see it in COVID. Do you remember they were, when they were pushing for another lockdown and Patrick Valance come out with... Patrick Valance, now you say his name, he does sound like... He does sound like one of those old crooners you would get back in the day, you know, that you'd see him singing a song whilst walking a fucking sheepdog. Um, <laughs> uh, Patrick Valance, remember he saying there could be 50,000 deaths a day? He just kept fucking going. Like, what's it going to take? You know... You name the figure, all right? You name an amount of deaths that would get us a lockdown, and that's what I'll say. So it it does it does happen, right? There's a, there's literally a phrase for this kind of thing. The road to hell is paved with good intentions. Once you think that you are on the side of virtue, what what will you do to get to that end? Will, will you be as rigorous in examining your own reasoning as somebody who's project or viewpoint is more roundly contested in in sort of mainstream media sources you know i mean you notice this with i'll give you an example but this is slightly off the point right is whenever you have a presenter now whether it's sky news bbc or any of these mainstream sources they are always worried about you know not seeming on side with the inverted commas right causes and there was an example of it where there was there was some media pundit uh he said that he noticed that the lionesses didn't have many black girls in and they were all white girls with blonde hair and blue eyes and this doesn't represent Britain 
And the presenter pushed back on it for a moment. And then he just repeated the point. And then she just clearly shot herself. I don't know if you... The clip went fairly viral. And she was like, yeah, yeah, because, you know, you can't be what you can't see. And she just went back to kind of like the playbook of what's the fucking safest stuff for me to say from a career point? Yes, I'll get some right-wing people that will call me a twat. But what's the thing that's not going to get me suspended? Um, So, you know, there are... There is a tendency. I guess it would be difficult, you know, if you're hosting a phone-in on, on BBC Radio 5 Live to to go against... Once someone said, I believe that this pollution has led to the death of this person, to, to, to sort of take it out to the broader argument because it seems insensitive and you don't want to be that viral clip of BBC Radio presenter says, fuck you to your dead relative, I just want to drive my car. I get it, but it also... It, it, some of these things don't, are maybe not subject to the scrutiny that they should be. And, you know, it, it's interesting that Labour activists are trying to now link it to the Tories. That says to me that they know how unpopular um, this is. But the point is, is right, so even, at, yes, yes, Boris did bring in Ules, and there is some, uh, there's some suggestion that the expansion of Ules was conditional to extra funding or bailout for TfL, right? It sort of misses the point, doesn't it, in a way? Because this is how politics works. The narrative is that this is, you know, that Sadiq Khan, this is him, and he's a Labour politician, and he's done this. In the same way that the Tories aren't deliberately pumping human shit into the sea just for a laugh, right? But that's a narrative. That's how it's landed, right? And the Conservatives have got to fight back against that perception, because that's what far too many people think, right? And no, the Labour Party in its entirety aren't behind this ULES expansion, you know. Ask me a question if they get in power, would there be a lot more stuff like this? I think that they probably they probably would. But, you know, Starmer has sort of asked in a very Starmer-esque way, look, I, I just think, you know, maybe he should reconsider. Oh, what a... Oh, there goes Keir, climbing off the fence there. Maybe he should reconsider. I'd like him to think again. I'd like him to think again. God, this guy. Keir's hot takes. Keir's hot takes. He, oh, there's no argument that guy won't wade into. Uh, anyway, look, it's not about Keir Starmer. He has become a bit of an obsession on the podcast. Thing is, if you ask anybody, do you, do you think we should aim for cleaner air in London? Everyone would say yes, right? The only question would be, how how quickly do we do that? What support, you know, what support do we need to offer to make sure people's lives aren't harmed in other ways? And it does seem, it does seem that this guy, Sadiq Khan, just... For a long time while he's been in Paris, just told people off and told people stuff that they can't do and, and raised prices for things. You know, it's just, there's very little in the way of going, yeah, but what's his legacy that, that people generally like? You know, both Ken and Boris had had things that, that you know, played out well, more, you know, in a broad sense with the public. But it doesn't really matter, does it? It doesn't really matter for Sadiq. He'll win a third term because the Tories have got some candidate in that nobody really knows. You know, with the Ules stuff, they could make some ground, but their selection process... Uh, was an absolute mess. I mean, there has to be some Tory grandee that could just throw their hat in the ring just to make this at least a contest, you know? Ken Clark, just get him out of retirement. Just offer him, I don't know, just offer him some Cubans and some fucking whiskey vouchers. Uh, um, because Sadiq, it's just a cakewalk for him. And I do, I bet you any money, like once Sadiq comes out of power, we will find out that the atmosphere in his office, I reckon there is a lot of... I mean, you talk about groupthink in modern Britain. I think that the the sense of project and mission in and around um, Sadiq Khan is probably greater than anything in politics, actually. 
I think it'll be a really interesting period to look back on once he leaves or whenever he does leave office. But he's um, but people just lap it up. He's just he's the politician. You can't do this. Don't touch that. Don't say that. I'm blurring this out. Don't say that to women. Don't say, don't have beach bodies. Don't drive your car. What about something we fucking can do, you know? You know, we had the Boris bus, Ken Livingston, improved public transport, Boris bikes. Name something good after yourself, Sadiq. The Sadiq sandwich. <laughs> the Sadiq sandwich. There you go. Just like a really cheap but really nice sandwich that everyone agrees and it's subsidised by Sadiq himself out of his own pocket. The Sadiq sandwich. There you go. That just, just, just... Just something that something you've done that isn't a policy that just really pleases one group of people and pisses off everybody else. Okay, so like I say, you know, whatever I talk about and what most people think, I'm aware that not not everyone's going to think it. Maybe most, but you have a right of reply. What most people think, UK at gmail.com. Obviously, if you are a patron, I'm likely to see those uh, just that bit quicker. Um, just a quick hype while we're at it. We've got more pa- new patrons here. Olet Fixu. Olet Fixu. I mean, you're just making it hard for me. To, are you, is that really your name? Olet Fixu? What kind of name is that? It's got to be some sort of fucking Finnish name. I don't know who you are, Olet, but you have a beard. And you had that beard is so big, things live in it. Things live in it. Old food, trees, trees, mammals. Mammals live in the beard of Olet Fixu. We've got Michael Kalimor. I don't know why I instinctively said that in a South African accent. Michael Kalimor. It just sounds like one of those guys that you find out is suddenly like a really famous rugby player in, in South Africa. Michael Kalimor. Oh my God, that guy, that oak. I, don't, I used to know loads of South African people, and then I moved out of Wimbledon. Uh, Andy Holden, Andy Holden. Well, that is that is a that is a footballer from the nineties, isn't it? Like a real, just beautiful left foot, Andy Holden. To tell you what, he one of those players he could have played, could have played at top level for years, Andy Holden. But uh, he liked to drink. <laughs> one of those players, wasn't he? One of those players that he just uh, more stories about him than appearances. <laughs> Andy Holden, yeah, I remember Andy Holden went on tour. I remember he played when he, he when he played drunk. He, he was untouchable. <laughs> oh, I miss that generation of footballer. By the way, just to let you know, booking ahead for the autumn, and I've got. I want to talk about nineties footballers on this show. I want to talk about the last great age of funny anecdotes. So we're going to have Perry Groves, former Arsenal player, on the show. I hope you'll enjoy that. But if you've got any, um, I'll, I'll be reaching out to patrons for questions uh, for Perry. So I'll be reaching out to the board member level for that. So remember, if you are a patron and you want to be a board member level, then just uh, up your contribution to £20 a month and you'll get you'll get the says on the big issue regarding the podcast. Also, Darren Hill, I know that you became a board member while I was in Edinburgh. I will be sorting out that book for you this week, mate. It'll be in the post. So message me, because this is one of the offers of being a board member guy or guy S, and message me what you want the inscription to be. Remember, 10 words or less, and it can't be litigious. And just a reminder, you know, with the Edinburgh Fringe done, the autumn leg of the tour is 85% sold now. So if you want to come to shows, just have a look through. There's uh, Wickham, Peterborough, there's a few with tickets left, Dundee, Dublin and Belfast. (laughs) What's the link there, Jeff? Ireland and Scotland. Couldn't possibly tell you. But, you know, they're selling okay, but they've definitely got tickets left uh, for now. And then also now thinking ahead to next year. I'm going to some really cool places next year. Loughborough, Mansfield. I mean, cool places. All right, let's not stretch it. I'm going to some places. 
Loughborough, Mansfield, Aldershot for the first time doing a tour show there. I mean, it, it does currently sound like a tour of the shitholes, doesn't it? Loughborough, Mansfield, Aldershot, Deptford. No, I'm not going to Deptford. But um, I'm going, where? Middlesbrough. Middlesbrough. I'm going to fucking smog monsters. I'm going to, speaking of pollution, I'm going to fucking Middlesbrough, man. I'm going to come back. Fucking, I'll have aged. <laughs> All right, so this is a, a letter from... Who is it from? I won't say his full name, um, but he'll know who it is. It's from Gav. Uh, Gav says, Hi, Jeff. I'm a big fan of the podcast and your last book. Uh, getting a new one soon, I promise. So remember, where did I go right? If you haven't bought it, it's still available. Amazon, Waterstones, and then, of course, the new book, The British Bloke Decoded, is available from the, those same places. Uh, anyway, I thought I'd share with you an incident a couple of years ago with my young daughter that I think might interest you as a former teacher. My daughter was five years old at the time and at school they were celebrating Black History Month. A lot of the themes that were brought up at the time were a bit new to her and we suspected she didn't quite understand yet at a such, a such a young age. But overall it seemed positive that she was learning about this. Uh, anyway, one day I picked her up from school and we got the bus home, chatting as usual about what she learned at school. Out of nowhere, she asked quite loudly on a busy bus, Daddy, have you heard of Rosa Parks? I mean, like, just as a parent already, you're like, fucking, this could go either way. Uh, me? Um, yes, I have. Why? I bet you said it in that voice. Yeah, 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 yes, yes. I think what I'm supposed to think. Uh, he's, uh, and then your daughter said, uh, we learned about her today at school. Uh, he says, oh, that's really interesting. What did you learn? And he acknowledges here that he should have realised this was a risky move. And she says, well, she sat on a bus and a man told her to move because one side of the bus was for white people and the other was for black people. And she said no. And then dad says, I know it's bad, isn't it? Unfortunately, things were different back then. And then his daughter interrupted and said, no, but daddy, the rule was that she wasn't supposed to sit there. She should have followed the rules. I mean, God, this is the risk, isn't it? You know, well, five, that's a fucking lot to take on, isn't it? You go, no, you. it's the race thing that is the bigger... Because at five, a lot of their lives are about rules. Uh, so dad then goes on to say, you can imagine how awkward I felt at this point, feeling everyone on the bus's ears prick up to listen how I handled this. I mean, you could have just blown her out and just sat somewhere different. Girl, I'm not having that. I don't even know her. I don't, does anyone know this girl? <laughs> at this point, I tried to explain to her that this rule was morally wrong and that Rosa Parks was making a stand correctly. However, her five-year-old brain just understood that rules were rules. And the teacher says they should all follow the rules, even if they don't like them. Clearly, the lesson was delivered in a way that completely went over her head. Well, that's the point about when you're five, is it? I mean, you just, you don't know shit from clay on a day-to-day basis. Words come, they go, moments pass by you. So, of course, your daughter could miss that point. I'm, I totally understand that. Uh, I'm happy to say that my daughter, now nine, fully understands the significance of Rosa Parks and what she did. Though I wonder whether they should adapt lessons a bit more to the age group they are delivering them to. Well, based on what you're saying, fuck yeah. I mean, if literally, as you're ushering the kids in, goes, hey, rules are rules, just do what we say, you don't challenge it, rules are there to be followed. And again, so, and then you give like one of the prime historical examples of where rules are literally made to be broken. It's a tricky line. I mean, one thing that I do find about being a parent is that, um, is one of your jobs is to sort of let them know about bad shit that's happened. Because they just don't know, do they? So they'll just hear of a new concept they just shout something out. They're like, Daddy, what's rape? You're, oh, fuck. No. You know, Daddy, what's slavery? And my son asked me what slavery was the other day, and I had to explain it to him. And he um, and he was like, he was furious. He was livid, you know. <laughs> I mean, Jenny, in quite a comical way, he's like, that is, that is outrageous. I'm like, fucking, yes, arguably one of the worst things that's ever happened. So, yeah. And he, um, 
But then I thought, you know, what's, what's the risk if your kid is just an arsehole? Like, and gen- no, I'm not, you know, not when they're five, but if you tell them at the age of eight, tell them about slavery or like, you know, real, really bad sexism from the past and they just go, good old days, eh? You're like, no, 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 where you get, no, no, look, come on, it's 2023, you can't be saying that shit. They're going, oh, what, women had to stay at home and sort of, dad, where did we go wrong, eh, dad? Where? You're like, hey, Nate, you can't be saying that, man. What if they just suddenly, because, you know, boys are not really that well equipped to deal with nuance. A lot of them aren't. My son is, but, my, you know, God, that was a classic parental thing. My one's all right. All the other lot, though. But they're not. Like, have you noticed when you, all, I remember with young boys, the moment they found out about nuclear weapons, every boy goes through a phase of thinking that you can just nuke anything. Just, why can't we nuke it? You know, any, conv, any global conflict, you're, if you have a son, they'll just go, why can't we just nuke Russia? And you go, I mean, if you're asking as a rhetorical question, fine. If you, if you think that's a strategic way forward from here, then I have to question your military acumen, son. Okay, that is more or less it for the show, but we have a couple of reviews to read out. So remember, if you leave a five-star review on iTunes, thank you for all the people that do on Spotify. I just can't find where they are, but thank you. Um, this is from Carolyn who says that we spoke about the phrase man up last week. In that episode with the man whisperer, by the way, there's a lot of good stuff in there. Do listen to that. She says, as regarding the phrase man up, my daughter, who's 30, and I, who's a 60-year-old woman, use it all the time. I even use it at pep talk to her before she went to have a baby. (laughs) That's hilarious. She's about to do the most female thing possible. You're like, man the fuck up. Um, she uses it all the time to get men or women to just get over yourself and and get on with it sort of way. Yeah, it is really just a phrase. This is from Pinsta. Pinsta. First saw Jeff on the MASH report, and he was consistently the funniest segment on it. Well, that's very kind of you. I found the podcast about two years ago as I was keen to find something that could talk about politics with a sense of humour that wasn't just jokes about how crap the government is. Norcott delivers this and much more, and he goes on to write... Uh, other, oh, he says at the bottom that he's going to order the book, so I'm going to read He's just pre-ordered the latest book, The British Bloke Decoded. That's very kind of you. Very kind of you, sir. I think those are all the reviews for now. Uh, yeah, I read that one last week. So listen, it is great to be back from the fringe. I'm so excited about taking the tour out. The, the show's developed nicely, so I look forward to seeing as many of you out there as possible. And if the bloke from that Costa is somehow listening, uh, what most people think UK at gmail.com, I'll take you on a weekend that would uh, really give your wife something to be in a mood about. <laughs> <laughs>